Up to now in Mark, we have looked at, as you might see in the end of the bulletin, what I've called the prologue, where we saw the good news of the Son of God initiated. Before we continued with Act 1, Jesus' ministry in Galilee, which I termed the good news about Jesus proclaimed and demonstrated. As I said in my first sermon in this walk through Mark, Mark is a fast-paced, action-packed walk, uh, documentary drama, in a sense. Fast-paced in episodes, they come pretty rapidly, and Mark does not always give as much details to the stories as the other gospel writers does, although in some senses he gives a little bit more. In this text, actually, in the storm, we will, and in the demon-possessed man, we will see Mark giving us more details than the others do. Jesus is proclaimed as the Son of God at his baptism, and through his ministry in Galilee, we see him healing people, we see him casting out demons here and there, but he's mainly preaching and teaching. Teaching, then, is what we have gone through the last two times in Mark, where we looked at larger portions of parables and teaching, where we have, um, and the big point was discipleship in those. Remember the four different kind of soils, the wayside, the rocky, the thorny, and the good soil, and how the good soil produced bountifully. To this point, Jesus has told everybody what his mission is. He is who he is and what he is here to do, but people are not getting it yet. They see him as some sort of a prophet or a healer of some kind, but in this text, Jesus is kicking it up a notch. He is showing that he is so much more than just a prophet or just a teacher or a healer. This will be a longer section showing how powerful he is before Jesus starts his journey towards Jerusalem in a few chapters. And there, in that journey, he will explain his identity, and there is also where he will fulfill his purpose. But now we're still in seeing his power being revealed, as I call it, good news about Jesus proclaimed and demonstrated this part. The emphasis of the text, although many might have heard this section preached before, read before at least, you might wonder, what about the pigs? What about this or that? The emphasis of the text is, it lies in the power, the displays of power that Jesus shows, his displays of power. And Mark is emphasizing not only the power itself, but the marveling, the trembling, and even the fear that the people who see it react with. We will look at this in uh, the powers, Jesus' power over elements, over unclean spirits, and over death. This leaves people marveling at who he is. So you have the raw displays of power, and you have the identity of Jesus shown through that display of power. So the title of the text is, Marvel at the power of Jesus. Marvel at the power of Jesus. And my three points, according to the structure of the text, will be that. Let us marvel at, the, at Jesus' power over nature. Second, marvel at Jesus' power over the spiritual realm. And marvel at Jesus' power over sickness and death. I'll give them again when we come, come there. 
Mark is writing to the persecuted church in Rome. And to them, it must have been reassuring to read of their Lord, seeing how he had the power over nature, the spiritual, the physical, even sickness and death. And I pray we will also be encouraged by this text as Mark's audience probably, or I hope were. My first point then, looking at chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. Marvel at Jesus' power over nature. Marvel at Jesus' power over nature. In this first point then, with Jesus' power over nature, the disciples have to decide between faith and fear when they behold Jesus' power, faith and fear. This will echo through all of the text. Faith and fear, faith and marvel. There's always a human reaction, but Jesus is saying, let that lead to faith, as we will see. In the last sermon, we started in a boat when Jesus was preaching, and the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Through the story, we will see Mark's point of this historical event in theological light. The Bible never gives a story before linking it to a theological truth. They might be more plainly seen or sometimes hidden, but that is the point of the Bible. It's not just to give us a history book or some stories. It's always to lead us to some knowledge of who God is or what he has done or what we are to believe about him. And so we will see here that Jesus is God incarnate and how this is crucial for discipleship. Jesus is showing that he's doing things that only God can do. These disciples in the story, both those who are in the boat with Jesus and in the other boats, set out in the evening. Fishermen, as many of them were, knew that during daytime, it was often more stormy in the Sea of Galilee than at nighttime. So the morning or the evening was the best time to go out fishing. There were because of frequency of storms in the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is about uh, 200 meters below sea level. So the sea level and the Sea of Galilee is down land. And it's almost like in the bowl, some call it a basin, like there are hills and mountains surrounding it. And because of the topography, there was a weather phenomenon there that would cause cold wind from Mount Hermon in the northeast, from Ethiopia, 
So from Mount Hermon, which lay about 9,200 feet, which is about 2.8 kilometers tall, this Mount Hermon, Hermon, and wind would travel from that and down to the Sea of Galilee, causing this wind tunnel where cold air rushed down and met this hot air that was also almost encapsulated in the Sea of Galilee, this bowl. And this could whip up some really, really strong storms. Not as in great as in great, good, but as in size. So they're leaving in the evening to avoid these storms, to avoid the worst of the winds. But don't you know it, a storm did come at this point. A great windstorm arose during times it should not. This wind tunnel, in a sense, is known even today. And in Arabic, it's called Sharkia, the shark, almost as this shark is coming down to the Sea of Galilee to catch some people in the sea. You can almost picture it coming down and striking at a moment's notice. In Greek, it is Lylops Megale Anemo, a sudden storm, a hurricane, a whirlwind, and Megale, it is described as large, great, in the widest sense, megale as mega, great, large, mega. As a kid, you might have described something as ultra, fa- ultra fun, super cool, or mega great. It was always these superlative words to describe it. Mega being one of them, meaning the greatest. And mega is as large as you get, mega something. And the uh, great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the sea of the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. There's this great windstorm, this mega storm. And so the twelve call him, several of them being experienced fishermen and they have been out in weather before this. But this, this scares them. They are afraid, scared of their lives. And this echoes back to another story in Scripture where they were also great, they were also in a great storm, fearing their lives greatly. In, jo- in Jonah chapter 1, you may join me or hear it, I will read it in full. So God called Jonah to go to Nineveh and call out judgment upon Nineveh. And this was the last thing the prophet Jonah wanted. But the Lord hurled, so he fled. He got onto a boat and he wanted to flee to Tarsus, which is closer towards Spain. So he got on a boat and to escape the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and they cried out to each his God. Each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out your God. Maybe the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. This is a a pagan. He tells them that he fears the Lord. Well, then Jonah answers and says that he fears the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And he told him, told the crew, that he was fleeing from this Lord. He was fleeing from this God's presence. So he was the one who blamed for the storm. 
and he slept in the boat. Jesus, he is sleeping in the stern, like this sort of overbuilt uh, part of the of the stern of the boat. The back of the boat was sort of a roof over it so that they could sit there and steer. Um, not that it was his fault that the storm was there, but the similarities are striking and must be intentional, many say. One of the times we receive this, the humanity of Jesus where he's sleeping is after a long day of preaching. In a funny sense, the weathered fishermen are frightened, but Jesus is calmly sleeping. The captain of Jonah's story is yelling at him for sleeping while they're perishing, and the disciples do the same here to Jesus. Teacher, do not care that we were perishing, almost as a rebuke. Do you not care? Of course he cared. He did care. He got up and rebuked the storm and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the winds ceased, and there was a great calm. Remember the Lylops Megale, the mega storm? Well, now there was a Galena Megale, a great calm, a great tranquility. I don't know if you've, I assume that you have seen a storm somewhere, sometime at the sea. And if you've been in Stavanger for a year's time, you must have seen some great storm or in other similar areas. You've probably seen what a storm can do to Hafsjur, for example, or the city fjord out here. Waves, even nowadays, around the Sea of Galilee can measure up to 10 feet tall, or about 3 meters tall. Not, the, not like to revel, rival the Sea of the Pacific or anything, but compared to the size of the sea, the usual calmness of it, and the sturdiness of boats that one would have there, it was something terrifying. And this boat usually was like about four meters tall from the, from the bottom to the top of the rails. And they could hold about like 15, 12, 15 people in it. They found wrecks preserved in the mud. And so they've seen the sizes of these. And maybe it was in one of these storm, one of these boats that Jesus and the disciples were. If this storm was at this level or higher, this dark turning point here would then be transformed into a mega calm. The sea as calm as a mirror. It was mega tranquil. Jesus rebuked the waves as he would rebuke the evil spirits. The waves were then muzzled. The jaw was tightly shut. He muzzled the storm. He forced it to be quiet. The storm is almost portrayed as this demonic power rising against them. And many religions over the world have these view of these naturalistic religions where they view nature as powerful, dark forces. But let us turn again to the Old Testament, and I will read a portion of Psalm 107. You may join me or you may listen to what I read. So I'll go to Psalm 107. And I'll be reading from chapter, some verses 23 to 32. Psalm 107, 23. Some went down into the sea in the ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. 
They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. This being the Old Testament reading for today. Jesus is here, the master of the storm in our New Testament text. The storm has to obey him. In a sense, it was not a prayer or an incantation from Jesus. He made a spell or he he pleaded with the storm or he prayed, Oh, please let this happen. He said, Be still, quiet. For he commanded the storm and raised the stormy wind. And also he made the storm be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Remember back in... Chapter 4, when Jesus is binding, 3 maybe, when Jesus is telling of the binding of the strong man, and then he will plunder the house. This is the same language where he is he's commanding the spirit. He's showing, this, he's, sorry, commanded the storm. He is, in the same way as he commanded spirits to depart, to be quiet, to be still. He's saying to the storm, be still, be quiet, shush. The storm was a powerful force to be reckoned with, which the sailors knew very very well. The story is not here. It's not here to say that Jesus can still the storms of your life, although sometimes he does, and it's a nice image. But the, the point here of the text is not this. So that could be a great sermon in the wrong text. This story here in Mark is trying to tell us that Jesus, that Jesus had the power of the storm, that he was, in fact, God. As I said in the beginning, the emphasis of the text lies in the power display of Jesus. It's just showing power. It's not trying to be clever. It's just showing a display of power up till now. Display of power. And now we'll get through the, to the effect this display of power has on people. And hearing this directly, his disciples and the disciples in the other boats following. The power display was not, it was meant to set Jesus apart. The intended purpose was not just to demonstrate that Jesus possessed power over nature, but that in it he does things that only God can do. He didn't ask God for these things. He, he commanded as God. He was God incarnate. And that is what he's trying to show the disciples then, and he's trying to show it's the same today. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with a great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? When the boat was filling and in danger of being swallowed by the depths, the disciples were afraid. This is the third time in the text where mega is used. They were mega afraid. They were scared of their lives. They were phobon megan. If you're scared of tight spaces, you're claustrophobic. Phobic, phobon. 
Phoban meaning fear, terror, alarm, reverence, respect, or fright. When the waves were crashing about, they were scared of their lives. They were afraid. When Jesus calmed the storm, they were mega afraid. They were more afraid of Jesus' display of power than they were of the display of nature's power. When they saw the power of the elements, they were afraid and they said, we are going to die. But when they see this great upheaval, quieted down to a mirror, they're exceedingly scared. They're greatly fearing. Just in the sto- as in the story with Jonah, the sailors are afraid of the storm. But when Jonah is thrown in overboard, they are phobon megan. They are mega afraid there as well. The sailors in Jonah feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the text here is using Lord's, the Lord's name. It's not as a god. They're not fearing a god. They're acknowledging Jonah's god, and they made sacrifices to him. What happened to them, we can only speculate. But maybe we will, we will know it. They made vows and sacrificed to the Lord. They saw the hand of the invisible God instilling the storm in the, in the book of Jonah. The disciples here saw God incarnate, visible and in front of them. And by his hand, the storm was stilled. By this, marks wants the readers then and readers of all time, which includes us, to recognize in Jesus the same presence of the Lord. The presence of the supernatural is more frightening to humanity than most destructive natural forces. And this is what I meant when I said that the emphasis of the text lies not in the display of power that Jesus has, but the effect it has on people. And here, in direct sense, the disciples... Jesus is not doing this miracle, miracle, English is my second language, miracle in a vacuum. He's showing it to those who were there so that they might see and believe and increase in their faith. And this is also the reason why Mark has included it in this text. We have been in Jesus binding the strongman, telling how he's robbing the kingdom of the devil by saving He is showing who disciples are, and now he's showing those disciples in our text who he is. He's showing it so they might see and believe and increase in faith. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? They were greatly fearing and said to one another then, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It is as Jesus is asking, Do you have faith or fear? But after this lesson though i believe that they got faith from him seeing this mighty power showing them that he is god o lord god of hosts who's mighty as who is mighty as you o lord with your faithfulness all around you you rule the raging of the sea and its waves rise you still them psalm 89 8 to 9 it is right and good for us to have a healthy fear when encountering God. We, sh- we shall not, we can't not be flippant with God. If we look at the people of Israel after God saved them out of Egypt, and when the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, 
the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him. Exodus 14 31. The question Mark puts to his readers includes us. Will our fear lead us to put our trust in him? Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, of God and the Holy Trinity says that God is immense, eternal, almighty, most holy. He's working all things according to his own righteous, most righteous will. He's most loving, most gracious, most merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, and he forgives iniquity, and he rewards those who seek him. And he's also the most just and terrible in his judgment, hating all sin. He is otherly. He is set apart. To fully grasp God would be to take a cup to try to scoop up all the sea in the Sea of Galilee. You cannot fill it. You cannot contain or get all the water in the little teacup, and neither can we. So he is otherworldly to us in some sense, although he has revealed much to us, enough that we can fear him and through the fear respect him and come to love and believe in him. Who is like our God? As Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. My second point then, looking at chapter 5, 1 to 20. Marvel at Jesus' power over the spiritual realm. 5, 1 to 20. Marvel at Jesus' power over the spiritual realm. In this second point, they, both Jesus and the disciples and the other boats, they come across, they come over to the other country, the country of the Gerasenes, the area of the Gerasenes on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So they've been traveling up down that tunnel of wind, so to speak. And as they step out of the boat, a raving man is is running headlong for them. Mark gives us the description that he lived among the, de- the, the decaying and dead among the tombs. He had supernatural strength as he could not be bound. He was crying out and cutting himself. He could not be tamed or controlled. Luke adds that he lived there for a long time and that he wore no clothes and that he lived as a wild animal. But when this wild animal saw Jesus from afar... He ran and fell before him, crying out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. As one commentary puts it, Jesus has just calmed the violent storm at sea, and he now meets a man who has an equal raging storm inside of him. Arguably, as Sproul once said, this demoniac must be one of the sorriest sight to behold in the Bible, even beyond what we saw in Job when Pastor Pastor Matt preached on Job last time. So Sproul, R.C. Sproul, the late theologian, says that this man is an even sorrier sight. He's worse off than Job was. This man is a terror to himself and to others, so much that he is banished to live among the dead, and people try to restrain him, either for his own sake or for their own. He is doomed to be unclean. He lives in a Gentile land, among pigs. 
He's demon-possessed, and his dwelling is with the dead, as if so himself already. He was totally unclean, ceremonially, spiritually, and physically. Some commentators say that he is such a sorry existence that he is cutting himself with stone, self-inflicting pain. But I don't see anything in the text necessarily saying that it is he who does it to himself. The text doesn't say that. So it might very well be the work of the demons in him, punishing him and tormenting him even more. The text isn't clear, so I'm not going to make a judgment on it. But back to Jesus' word then. Come out of the man, you unclean spirits. I don't think it's a command from Jesus yet. Because if it had been, the spirits would have no choice in the matter. But they, they ask him not to. So... I think it's that Jesus wants to talk with a demon a little bit more for an explanation and for display. Jesus asks, who are you? What is your name? The reply, my name is Legion, for we are many. Did you notice what the demon said to Jesus, if I go back a little bit? Well, I read it in the text earlier. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. It's basically the demon saying, I swear to God that you will not torment me. The demons were terrified of that Jesus would cast them out to judgment. Matthew and Luke fills in that the demons, for many had entered him, begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss before the time. So this legion of demons begged Jesus not to cast them out of the country before the time because they knew that they were headed there eventually this legion of demons begged Jesus not to cast them and legion is a Greek military term and it's the largest troop unit in the Roman army some say 5,600 people not it was necessarily this number but legion was then used as a term for a lot of people or a lot of things like a legion of You wouldn't say legion of fish or legion of birds because there's a terror sense to it. (laughs) A legion of puppies is coming. It doesn't sound quite quite well. So it might not have been 5,600 demons, but it was a great number of demons. (laughs) And we can't even begin to imagine how it must have been for this poor wretch to have not just one demon, but a legion of demons in him. The demons then begged Jesus to send them into herd of pigs because Jesus says then, go out from him. And the demons ask, can we go into the pigs? And Jesus says, yes, you may. And it was a mega herd of pigs, about 2,000 or so. And Jesus allows them to do so. And so the demons rush the pigs down into the sea and they drown. It is curious, but it's not the point of the text but many believe that the herd of pigs, unclean animals as they were, were there to feed the Roman army. The Bible doesn't say why the demons did it, nor directly why Jesus allowed them to do it. But what we do know from it and from other texts is that Jesus valued one human life more than 2,000 pigs. As one commentator puts it, compared to the redemption of a human being, the last of the swine herd, considerably though it is, does not rate mentioning 
it's not not even worth mentioning the the two thousand pigs. Awful that it is. I'm not abdicating animal cruelty, but Jesus is showing that one human life is so much more valued than these pigs. And those who stood by and saw it, the herdsmen, they fled to the city and to the country and told everybody about it. And people came back to see what had happened. And maybe saw the pigs and the water. And they saw the demon-possessed man sitting by Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And their reaction to this demon to calm person as the storm to the calm sea they were afraid what did they have to fear they feared the demon the demon possessed man for what he did to them or did around them by terroring them it, another says another another sorry gospel says that he was terrifying and terrorizing the, the area but Jesus cleans the man and they are afraid of Jesus they begged Jesus to leave. They didn't ask him, can you stay for a while? Can you do some more? Can you show us more who you are? Can you help us? Please leave. They did not marvel and ask him to stay and tell him the more who he was. But the man, now sound of mind, he begged Jesus to go with him. But Jesus says, no, Go about to your friends and to your, those you know and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Imagine you know someone's life who is in a rut and it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse and it will, I don't think it will ever be as bad as this poor fellow. But then you see them later and there's a contra nature to it they're the opposite of what they was healed healthy saved and everybody marveled some marveled while others were more afraid of jesus some were more afraid of jesus than they had been of the demon possessed man so again the purpose of the text is to display jesus's power but by that to get the main point is people's reaction to this power and people standing by and the audience of the first audience of mark who mark wrote to and to us the later audience of mark is how much has the lord done for you and how has he had mercy upon you jesus did what only god could do for the demon possessed man and by it showed that he had total power of the spiritual realm Playing back to the strong man story, the only reason any of us are, are saved and get to sit by Jesus' feet, restored and in sound mind, is that Jesus freed us from spiritual darkness. For those of you who have maybe been saved out of a dark pit, rejoice and tell how much God has done for you in saving you and how he has had mercy on you. For others who do not have this, as some say, spicy uh, testimonial, who have not lived a horrible life before being saved rejoice in that that you've been shown mercy and not seeing all the darkness there are no boring testimonies because we were all dead in sin until god saved us and this is a thing worthy of marveling worthy of righteous fear and of godly and holy thankfulness
the last point then on sickness and death. Looking at verses 21 to 43 in chapter 5. Marvel at Jesus' power over sickness and death. Marvel at Jesus' power over sickness and death. And in this section, Jesus will call us to have faith instead of fear. Do not fear, have faith. In the others, it's where is your faith and leading to faith. But in this it says, don't fear, just have faith. So they crossed over again. So they started on the one side of the sea, went over, and now they're back again. And again, a great crowd gathered about him. And then one of the rulers of the synagogue, not a, he was not a rabbi, but he was a, what do you say, an administrative role. He, Jairus, he comes and falls at Jesus' feet, imploring him to visit his house and heal his daughter. And Jesus went with him. The daughter's condition is critical. She is at death's door or sinking fast. The multitude follows to see what is going to happen and are thronging about him. They're crowding um, again around Jesus. Mark then moves to say that there was this woman. So Mark is saying, this happened, this happened, this happened. And it says, he comes, he goes to the Jairus, but on the way, this happens. This woman, this woman who the text says has a discharge of blood for 12 years and she spent all her money to seek medical help, but nothing has worked. Rather, it has made it worse. This was a menstrual hemorrhage, a prolonged menstrual bleeding for 12 years. The text doesn't give any more graphic or detail, so I won't either, but that's the, that was the ailment that she had for 12 years so she's suffering of she's suffering physically by by anemia lack of blood so then lack of oxygen going around the body this is painful and makes the the body uh, weak and frail because without oxygen the limbs the intestines the brain doesn't work as properly as it has to so she was suffering from that because of the bleeding. She was also suffering emotional damage due to it, the awkwardness of it, to put it discreetly. But this charge of blood was one of the things in Judaism looked upon as unclean. Many things were ceremonially unclean, and this was one of them. Her desperation to get healed is making her ignore Jewish laws that, that you couldn't be with people or, or touch people. She was basically chepper, she was basically treated as a leper. But her desperation is forcing her to touch Jesus then because she moves towards him and she thinks that he, if I just touch his clothes, if I just touch the hem of his robe, I'll get healed. Because she had heard the things that Jesus had done and that people had been healed by him, so she is in a desperate plea, just reaching out to him. If I even touch his garments, I will be made well. And she did. The flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Jesus also knows within himself that power has gone out of him, and he has healed someone, and asks, who was it? It was not a rebuke as he's looking at, who did that? 
he's looking around asking who was it and he's not just looking like who, who, who did this he is scanning he's looking who did it the text says he intently looks he is looking to get an answer he's not just seeing okay no, no one came forth he wants the person who did it to come forth he's looking and seeing if someone comes out the daughter the, the woman then comes forward and falls at his feet and tells him all about it tells him the whole truth and Jesus does not rebuke her for doing it he says not ceremonially unclean woman he doesn't say you sinner he says daughter your faith has made you well go in peace and be healed of your disease and this woman not knowing wellness neither physically nor socially for the last 12 years she now after encountering jesus finally has peace so this go in peace was a normal greeting of goodbye but it's not just a for her a goodbye it's a peace we peace be with you she who had known no peace and just while this is happening this one this person comes from the rulers the ruler of the synagogue's house comes and tells this Jairus your daughter is dead don't bother Jesus anymore so Jesus stopped to heal this woman instead of rushing to the house but Jesus overhears it and says don't don't worry about it don't fear just have faith so Jesus the ruler and he allows no one but the inner circle of the disciples Peter James and John and they arrive at the house and there's this big commotion this commotion is that when people died they were expected or i think actually by law to hire was it at least two flute players and a wailing woman to show that death had occurred and so these music this music and these wailing woman women almost to instill or create grief and they would go with the funeral procession from the house to the grave clapping their hands and wailing hauntingly and Jesus steps up to the house and he basically shuts them down why are you making a commotion and weeping the child is not dead but sleeping sleeping is a, a term of death so he's in a kind way saying she's not dead she's dead so it's sort of play on words because he says that it's not more difficult than she's sleeping i will wake her up the people they laugh at him they went from this this parade this show this performance of grief and crying and they flip it over to laugh at him the child was dead but jesus is here saying that it'll be well so he went in took the girl by the hand and called her to stand up and immediately the girl stood up and began walking not just a partial restoration but a full restoration she could use her legs the parents are overcome with amazement they marvel they are completely astonished they marvel at the work happening in their midst but this time jesus commands them not to tell anybody about it the demon possessed man he can tell about it 
and the woman with the bleeding, she gets no instruction about it, but this house gets told, don't tell anybody about it. This command was probably not particularly easy to keep because there was a wailing crowd um, around the house and people knew they were there, they were hired to wail and go to the grave. And like, you don't need to, you can leave, you don't need, you're not needed, but, but you hired us to wail for the dead girl. We don't, we don't need it anymore. Why? <laughs> we, don't, we don't need it. I don't know how well they kept the command. <laughs> don't tell anybody. So usually the word got out. In three, or four, three out of four instances, people in, in this text, people are astonished, marveled, curious to what is happening. All these that we've gone through today. It's what, ha- what is happening who is this Jesus really? Key, the- key themes in Mark includes the identity of Jesus constantly being revealed more and more, and almost alongside it, the misconceptions of who the Messiah really is. Often, especially when there's a mighty miracle, like that of raising someone from the dead, and most often to always in these powerful miracles performed in Jewish settings, Jesus commands people not to tell about it because the Jews had their conceptions of who the Messiah was. And Jesus says, you're not ready for it yet. Don't, don't tell anybody. Don't broadcast it, because it, give it time. It'll come. Don't tell anybody about it. He doesn't want them to get ahead of themselves or get ahead of himself, in a sense. So sometimes he hides, and sometimes he reveals. And one of these revealings, then, I love by calling out the woman with the bleeding by everybody in the crowd eyeing her. So Jesus is actively scanning the crowd. She comes forward. Every person's eye is upon her coming up to Jesus. He called her clean. She, he didn't just make her clean. He called her clean by so doing. She said, this woman, by his actions, who has now lived, and you know her. She lives here. You know that she's unclean. And when you were unclean, you had to do things in the Old Testament. You had to offer, you had to sacrifice, you had to wash, you had to stay distant away from people. You had to distance yourself from them for time. And then you would see a priest and he would say, this person is now clean. This is the work Jesus is doing here. He's healing her and saying, clean, she can now live among you. Don't you dare to treat her as unclean anymore. It's the, the details in it. She's not just cleaned. She's not just cleaned up physically. She's cleaned up spiritually and socially as well. And with a little girl, she could also partake in society again as she got her life back. So to conclude then, as with the two other sections, the emphasis of this third one, with the story of the bleeding woman and the girl, is not just to show the power displays of Jesus, but it's to show what power does with people when they encounter Jesus. Because God is incarnate, people are affected. They're changed. Jesus has the power over nature, over the spiritual realm, and over sickness and and death. And these texts are here to make us marvel. Marvel means to intently look upon something wondrous or admire something. But it's also with the intense 
surprise or interest. Jesus has cast out demons before in our texts in Mark, and he is healed, but as I said earlier, he kicks it up a notch. He is stilling an entire storm. He's overcoming a legion with demons without a problem, and he's healing a long and painful disease and helping someone even from as far as the door to death. Let us marvel at our Lord today and all days to come as it will build our faith in him. And let us remember at the end of time, God will raise us all up from death and he will give us glorified bodies and invite us to dwell with him. We will be socially clean to be with him in a sense, world without end. That will be resurrection to marvel at. Amen.